2: That's 15% off at borough.com slash ACAST.
3: I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist for The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly America. December marks 10 years since the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting, when a gunman murdered 20 very young children and several teachers and staff at the school. The tragedy sparked a movement. For the past decade, parents, activists, politicians have used this and the hundreds of subsequent school shootings to advocate for safer gun legislation. But talking about gun rights in America is complicated, and mass shootings in schools and elsewhere are still happening. So what has changed? My colleague Joni Grieve travelled to Newtown, Connecticut, where the massacre happened, to talk to some of the people there, trying to ensure no one else goes through what they went through. Joni's report contains some distressing conversations with relatives of the victims of Sandy Hook, so bear that in mind before listening.
4: On Friday, December 14th, 2012 people in Newtown, Connecticut sent their children to school with plans of weekend activities and festive shopping lists to complete. But at around 9:30 a.m., reports started emerging about a shooter at Sandy Hook Elementary School.
0: The fun glass was all shot out or kept kept going on.
5: Okay. It's still happening.
4: By the end of the day, the parents of 20 children were being told that their 6 and 7-year-old sons and daughters had been shot dead. The worst grade school shooting in U.S. history, at least 27 dead, 20 children, seven adults, including the principal. It's now been 10 years since the tragedy, but it was certainly not the last time that Americans grappled with the mass killing of school children by those wielding deadly weapons.
6: It was over in a matter of minutes, but tonight, gut-wrenching survivor stories emerging from the deadly attack at that college in Oregon. We are
5: here in Texas tonight at the scene of the latest mass shooting at an American school. 17 people killed in a mass shooting at a Florida high school. Say
2: people, most of them kids.
4: Just this year, 19 students and two adults were killed in a school in Uvalde, Texas. And just like Sandy Hook, people wondered why it happened.
7: The shooting at the Robb
3: Elementary School in the city of Uvalde is the deadliest shooting at a U.S. elementary school since 20 children and six adults were killed at Sandy Hook
4: School in Connecticut a decade ago. In the case of Sandy Hook, we still don't really know why. The shooter, 20-year-old Adam Lanza, who murdered his mother before traveling to the school, killed himself before police officers could get to him. He didn't leave an explanation for his actions. But people are also dismayed at how it happened. Lance's mother, Nancy, was a gun enthusiast, and she legally owned the rifle that was used to shoot her and those at the school. That said, in the aftermath, many people argued that it was far too easy for a man not yet old enough to legally drink alcohol in America to get his hands on an AR-15 rifle which is used mainly by the military in war zones. There are people fighting to end mass shootings, and some gun laws have changed. But just this week, the Senate looks set to fail to get the 60 votes needed to pass an assault weapons ban. That means rifles, like the one used at Sandy Hook Elementary, can still be bought under certain conditions in the U.S. So what more can and should be done? A few weeks ago, I traveled to Newtown, the small leafy suburb in a quiet part of Connecticut, to see how the people there remember that day and how they have used such a horrendous moment in their history to force change.
0: Other places can do it. Other people are able to ban the government. What is so difficult about doing it here?
4: So it is Saturday, uh, shortly before noon here in Newtown. We're standing outside of Newtown's uh, police station and they are holding a gun buyback event here today.
7: My dad is from England. and he Really? Yeah, he's from Devon.
4: There are some volunteers here who are collecting uh, guns from those who are participating in the event. Some of them are very young volunteers, so I'm just gonna talk to them about how they got involved in the anti-gun violence movement.
0: I'm Geneva, Um, I'm a junior in high school, so I'm 16 years old, and I'm part of Junior Newton Action Alliance because I really want to create change because after seeing what mass shootings have done to communities and losing friends, it's just really hard to see that nothing has really happened and you still see these shootings all over the country still.
4: Newtown Action Alliance is a national all-volunteer grassroots organization, which was founded by residents of the town after the Sandy Hook shooting. Every year since 2012, They have organized these buyback events, where gun owners can drive to the police station, hand over their guns to police officers, and receive gift cards in various amounts, depending on the type of gun returned. The money needed for these events is raised throughout the year from donations to Newtown Action Alliance. Geneva and her friends, 15-year-old Olivia Muir and 13-year-old Mikhail Wilford, are part of the junior section of the organization. Mikhail was only three when the Sandy Hook shooting happened, but it still affects her and, she says, the community around her.
0: My older brother was in Sandy Hook, and I couldn't imagine if it was him. And it just kind of destroys communities, and it takes, like, a long time to build them back up. Like, even now, it still has an impact today.
4: It's hard to imagine if you don't live in the U.S. But as Olivia explains, English, math, or science aren't the only subjects taught in their schools. Children also learn how to protect themselves.
7: So we do lockdown drills and basically we get an announcement and we have one of the staff that works in the office say, this is a lockdown drill and the teacher will shut and lock the door and draw the blinds over the door window, turn all the lights off and we will hide.
4: Parents, politicians, and educators agree that lockdown drills are an important way for preparing children if the worst should happen. But for the students themselves, simply practicing for a potential shooter is stressful. Geneva isn't too sure the drills will even really help them if a shooter did try to enter her school.
0: I think the scary part about it is that you know that if there is an active shooter in the school, turning off the lights and locking the door isn't going to do anything. Like, you're really just sitting ducks in a classroom.
4: Every time news breaks of a mass shooting, whether it be in a school or in a supermarket or an outdoor event, many politicians are quick to come out and offer their thoughts and prayers for those affected, whether it be in a tweet or a press release. Olivia, Mikhail, and Geneva don't think much of that response.
7: I feel very angry because thanks for your condolences, but I mean, your words aren't going to do much unless you put actions with them it's not you can't keep apologizing when we're suffering and you can't say oh I'm so sorry you have all my condolences but we're just going to sit here and we're not going to bypass anything sorry we can't thoughts and prayers
0: aren't going to bring back people's brothers sisters friends cousins like it's not They're gone and we're just trying to prevent that happening for other people. And as we've seen in the past 15 years or so of mass shootings at all time high, thoughts and prayers aren't doing anything. And you have the power to do that and you're not taking it. And I think it's very weak of them.
4: Later on, I'll speak to Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut, who has worked to change America's gun laws. But first, I wanted to speak to Nicole Hockley and Mark Barden, who co-founded Sandy Hook Promise. Nicole and Mark established the National Nonprofit Organization after their two little boys were shot and killed in a first-grade classroom at Sandy Hook Elementary. I asked Nicole first to tell me about her six-year-old son, Dylan. Dylan how would you describe Dylan? it's funny, I do this so
1: often, and yet I still like, where do you start? I don't know. He just experienced the world in a very different way. Um, maybe because he was the youngest in our family, certainly because of his autism. So spent a lot of time kind of getting down to his level to try to understand how he was affected by different things, which really, I think, was very enriching to our family. Mm. Like, he would love looking at the moon and would always notice that or if there was if it was storming, he loved the lightning, although the thunder terrified him. He loved the color purple and would make pieces of paper with giant purple dots that he had drawn in, in class. He loved his teacher. His teacher died with him that day, and You know, he had delayed speech in a very sing-songy, high-pitched voice, so not everyone could always understand him, but we could. And um, his laughter was just peals of joy. And I remember um, at some of the classes we used to go to, people would tickle him just to hear him laugh because it was such a joyous sound.
4: December 14th was a Friday, a lot of kids' favorite day of the week.
1: Being a... Typical boy in many respects, a first grader. He both loved and disliked school. Um, He would much rather probably stay at home. So we had a routine going up the driveway every day that we would do a countdown. So Monday, we called it five days school, two days no school. Tuesday was four days school, two days no school, and so on and so forth, until we got to Friday. And that, that day, when we walked up the driveway, he looked at me and he said, last school, mommy. And I said, that's right, D, you know, two days school, uh, one day school, two days, no school. And he just kind of nodded at me in his Dylan-esque way and said, last day school. And, um, and then he got on the bus and that was the last time I ever saw him alive.
5: He noticed the beautiful sunrise on the last day of his life and how the the lights from our Christmas tree were twinkling in the window with that beautiful sunrise behind it. And I just thought it's so beautiful that he thinks like that, that he notices those things and appreciates them. And I went and got the camera and took a picture of it. So I have that picture from that, that Friday morning, December fourteenth, two 2012.
4: Mark also remembers walking his son, 7-year-old Daniel, the youngest in the family, to the bus that morning.
5: James and Natalie and Daniel were in three different schools, and they were all on three different buses an hour apart, 6.30, 7.30, 8.30, roughly. And I walked each, of them, each one of them to their bus and come back and then wake the next one up and walk, you know, and so on. But for the first time since they were in three different schools and on three different buses, I was walking James to his bus, and I hear these little footsteps behind me. And it was Daniel running down the driveway in shorts, his little Yankee pajamas with very thin fabric, shorts and a short shirt, and he put little flip-flops on in December, in 6.30 in the morning. It was dark and cold. I'm like, what are you doing up? And he said, can I walk to the bus with you and James so I can hug James and tell him I love him? And of course, that was typical of Daniel. To want to do that, but it was not typical for him to be up and out in the driveway in his pajamas at that hour of the morning in a cold December morning. So of course, I wasn't going to send him back into the house. I put him on my shoulders and he came up to the bus and he wrapped his little arms around James. And we got on the couch and we cuddled and wrestled and we did the little tickle bees in one of our little games. And then he asked me to show him how to play something on the piano. So I showed him how to play Jingle Bells. And, he, and he, of course, before that, he had to walk Natalie to the bus and we were talking about we were going to have friday night pizza with two of the other families in our neighborhood and what it's going to be a great a great friday and often we would play tag on the way to the bus but i had done a gig the night before and i was just tired and i said can we just walk this morning and so we just held hands and we walked to the bus and it was a it was a beautiful little morning and then uh, and then i started getting the calls and the texts that there was a lockdown in the district and And then, of course, next thing I knew, I was at this chaotic scene of horrific emergency uh, at Sandy Hook Elementary School and where we found out that 21st graders had been shot to death and six educators. And one of those first graders was that sweet, compassionate little boy.
4: Nearly 10 years after Nicole and Mark lost Dylan and Daniel, they turned on the news in May of this year to learn that history had repeated itself at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas.
5: Texas officials
2: report 19 children and at least two adults killed. The 18-year-old gunman, a high school student, fatally wounded by police.
4: Every time a mass shooting happens in a school, it brings them back to December 14th.
1: Back to hurt. More than most because it was such young children again. And just knowing how this was going to affect so many families in that community, that was was a really hard day.
5: I remember driving that afternoon with, with my wife, Jackie, and just both of us were quiet. We just kind of were processing and thinking. And she just turned to me and said, this is their Friday night. And, and that really resonated with me because they were in that moment of, what is going on?
4: After the shooting, Nicole and Mark set up Sandy Hook Promise as a way to avoid what Mark calls the pain caused by preventable gun violence, which has devastated
5: families like theirs. Another one of the catalysts for embarking on this work for me was when James and Natalie had questions about this atrocity that took their beloved little brother from them. And they're very natural questions that anyone would ask. But when your children ask you, you want to provide answers, and we couldn't. And so for me, um, another one of the reasons that I chose to begin this journey was to try to find some of those answers, and then through the answers, see if there was a way to prevent it from happening again.
4: And at this point, what does the work of Sandy Hook Promise look like? What are the programs that you have launched? The school-based programs that we've
1: launched are really focusing on how to create connections and to recognize you know, leakage or warning signs. So we have a program called Start With Hello, which focuses on how to recognize when someone is isolated and how do you reach out and bring that person in. And then that breaches over into Say Something, which is our program that teaches youth how to recognize warning signs and signals in their peers uh, in person or on social media, and how to tell a trusted adult or use an anonymous reporting system. And we have elements of the programs as well that you know teach adults, what does it mean to be a trusted adult? If a child comes to you and says, I'm seeing this, I'm hearing this, I'm worried about this person... What do you need to do as an adult? And it's all underpinned by a program around um, youth leadership and empowerment because we want youth agency and youth voice at the table defining what kind of school climate they want. What does safety mean to them? Because they're the ones that are impacted by this. So they should have a critical voice in saying what it should be and how to lead that activity throughout their school and community.
4: And there are a lot of conversations around language in the anti-gun violence movement. There are major differences when you say uh, gun restrictions versus gun control versus gun safety. Can you tell me a little bit about what do each of those differences mean to you?
5: So a very important aspect about this work, this movement, um, is education and awareness. And the way that you communicate is critical. And the words that you use matter. And... From studying other social movements, we have learned, for example, same-sex marriage versus marriage equality was, you can study this. It was a turning point in that movement. In this movement, the word control frightens people for obvious reasons. So instead of gun control, we like to say gun safety. Everybody wants to be safe. If you identify as a responsible gun owner, then this resonates with you. I want to be a responsible gun owner, I want to do the right thing, and, and not only to protect myself and my family, but it's just good PR to be responsible and to, to walk the walk. Uh, so, so we're very careful with saying, and it's not it's not a Trojan horse, it is what it is. It's, it's gun violence prevention through gun safety initiatives and policies that are evidence-based to result in public safety outcomes.
4: So I know that in the course of your work, you've had to have a lot of conversations with politicians about addressing gun violence. What have those conversations looked like? And have you experienced some pushback from lawmakers as you try to address this?
5: It depends on what we're talking to them about. And we talk to them about a range of issues that are relevant to the work that we do. Um, So we talk about actual safety provisions around gun acquisition, use, and storage, we also talk about mental health issues and how to provide better access to more people for mental health resources. Uh, we talk about school safety. We talk about cultural issues. So there is a range, but we frame all of it with common denominator principles that we all agree on, like we all want to protect our children. We all want to make our communities safer. We all, all want to be able to feel safe. We, we do kind of frame it with those common core values, and it should be consistent with what their values are, uh, as that should be their number one job in that they were elected to uh, ensure the safety and the well-being of their constituents. And, and we have a host of, of, of options for them to partner with us to do just that and to help us do our work.
4: Despite the recent memory of another tragic school shooting in Texas, the issue of tackling gun violence wasn't as much of a priority for most voters who went to the polls for the midterm elections in November. One exit poll found that about 6 in 10 midterm voters named inflation or abortion rights as their number one issue, compared to just one in eight who said the same of gun policy. Nicole thinks she knows why. With so many people dying and being
1: injured and being exposed to gun violence, youth and adults, every single day, I think as a country we've become less sensitized to it than we should. Mm-hmm. And we only think about it when it actually hits us directly. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's changed over the last 10 years. And I wish more parents would listen to their kids. Because when you go to kids and say, what's your number one fear? They talk about school shootings. Mm -hmm. And I think more parents need to hear that and figure out what their priorities are to keep their kids safe. So gun violence prevention this is what your kids are afraid about, and this is the number one killer of them. So it should be a priority for your voting as well.
5: And as more more kids who are directly impacted by this are become voters, I think you'll see that list of priorities. I think you'll see that coming up on that list of priorities. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we started this in the aftermath of the Sandy Hook tragedy, politicians, that was a lightning rod issue for them in 2012, 2013, and, and now over time, because of the advocacy, the, the inception of groups like Sandy Her Promise and so many others, because of the, the increased awareness, the narrative, and unfortunately being driven by the tragedies that you were just articulated, it is, it has come way up on the priorities for voters. And it is no longer a lightning rod issue for many, many legislators can now campaign and win on being advocates for gun violence prevention and gun safety initiatives.
4: Some politicians have made addressing gun violence one of their core missions in office, choosing to raise their voice whenever another mass shooting takes innocent lives. Senator Chris Murphy, a Democrat who represents Connecticut, is one of those politicians. When the shooting in Uvalde happened, he gave an impassioned speech on the Senate floor, pleading for his colleagues to do more.
2: Why do you spend all this time running for the United States Senate? Why do you go through all the hassle of getting this job of putting yourself in a position of authority, if your answer is that as this slaughter increases, as our kids run for their lives, we do nothing. What are we
4: doing? The shooting in Sandy Hook was a catalyst for Murphy's work on gun safety.
2: I was in Bridgeport, Connecticut. I had done an event that morning with the mayor, and then I was meeting my family, my wife and my two young boys at the time, ages four and one. At the train station in Bridgeport. We were going to take the rest of the day in New York City to take the kids down to see the holiday Christmas decorations in the city. And we were on the train platform in Bridgeport when my chief of staff, who was still with me at the time, getting ready to go back to Hartford, told me that there had been a shooting in uh, Sandy Hook at an elementary school. At, at first, I thought it was a, a workplace shooting. I um, thought maybe I could go you know, down to New York with the family. My kids were really looking forward to it. Um, But then shortly before the train arrived, um, got the news that there were children involved. I eventually made my way up to Newtown, left my family at the train station um, and spent the rest of the day in Sandy Hook.
4: And in the 10 years since December 14th, you've worked with a lot of groups, including Sandy Hook Promise, to try to change gun laws in America. Looking back on the past 10 years, what are some of your proudest accomplishments?
2: Well, We've built a movement in this country in the last 10 years that today, I would argue, is more powerful than the gun lobby. And that's significant because in 2012, the gun lobby, the NRA, was probably the most powerful political force in America, certainly within the Republican Party.
4: The National Rifle Association is a gun rights organization that advocates for the protection of the Second Amendment of the United States Constitution. It's this amendment you'll often hear quoted as a defense among those opposed to changing America's gun laws. The Second Amendment says, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, the debate rages on as to what the delegates who crafted the Constitution actually meant when they wrote this amendment. Did the founders think that any law-abiding U.S. citizen had a constitutional right to possess firearms? That's certainly what groups like the NRA think. Here's Wayne LaPierre, the organization's executive vice president and CEO.
5: When you ignore the right, of
2: good people to own firearms to protect their freedom, you become the enablers of future tyrants whose regimes will destroy millions and millions of defenseless lives.
4: But some members of the anti-gun violence movement say the Second Amendment was only intended to address a state's ability to muster a militia rather than an individual's right to gun ownership. Still, others contend that the Second Amendment does establish an individual's right to own a gun. But they say that states can legally regulate that right to ensure citizens' safety, particularly in public spaces like schools. Rather than regulating the Second Amendment, gun rights groups like the NRA argue that the way to make schools safer is by arming more teachers and other employees. Here's LaPierre again.
2: They all must come together together to implement the very best strategy to harden their schools, including effective, trained armed security that will absolutely protect every innocent child in this country.
4: This controversial proposal is opposed by many parents. The NRA is willing to put a lot of money behind their cause. According to data compiled by the nonprofit Open Secrets, Despite a drop in revenue and the high cost of various lawsuits the organization is fighting, NRA affiliates spent more than $10 million to support Republicans and oppose Democrats in the midterm elections. It's a lot less than what they've spent in previous elections, but they are still powerful enough to have significant influence in U.S. politics. That's why, as Senator Murphy puts it, gun safety advocates needed to do something.
2: We needed to build a political movement of parents of children uh, of gun owners that would be just as strong as the gun lobby and it took us a while it took us a while we had a lot of losses along the way but you know, now looking back these 10 years have you've know, seen a lot of state law changes a lot of referendums passed um, a lot of uh, private sector movement uh, towards responsible gun policy and now this summer the first gun safety bill passed at the federal level in 30 years. And I think we are now poised to rack up victory after victory for gun safety. And while we haven't seen the murder rates or the pace of mass shootings reduce, you know, once these laws start to get passed and put into place, I hope that we're going to see uh, you know, some real returns.
4: The legislation that Senator Murphy was talking about there was the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act which President Biden signed into law in June.
6: This is really a first step. If you talk to gun safety advocates, they tout the fact that it does do things like expand background checks and provide incentives for states to pass red flag laws. But they would argue it doesn't go far enough. Still, people are celebrating this legislation. The
4: BSCA marked a significant bipartisan breakthrough. As it was brought about by Senators Murphy and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, both Democrats, and Republicans John Cornyn of Texas and Tom Tillis of North Carolina. It passed in the House with 14 Republican votes and in the Senate with 15 Republicans.
2: I give a lot of credit to the two primary Republican partners, um, Senator John Cornyn of Texas, Senator Tom Tillis of North Carolina. They were personally moved by what happened in Uvalde. Obviously, it happened in Senator Cornyn's state. And they really saw this as a test of democracy. We all went home the week after Uvalde. It was our Memorial Day work period back in our states. And um, there was a real sense of fear and anxiety um, from parents and kids that I had not seen since Sandy Hook. And this, I think, just feeling of astonishment that Congress was going to do nothing again after another Sandy Hook had happened. And for Cornyn and Tillis, myself, Kirsten Cinema from Arizona, we were the four primary authors. We really felt like if democracy didn't deliver, if we didn't do something to try to show parents that we were serious about the safety of their kids, a lot of people would start questioning what the point of democracy was if you couldn't step up on an issue as existential as this. So I think it was that imperative from voters, um, plus the outside organization that the anti-gun violence movement had built that kept the heat on during those 30 days of negotiation that helped us, you know, get to a a product that could pass. And it was substantial that would save lives.
4: There was a crucial amount of support from Republican lawmakers in Congress, but the reality is that the vast majority of Republican lawmakers opposed the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. When we were in Newtown recently, we spoke to a group of teenagers, members of the Junior Newtown Action Alliance, who said they're really sick of hearing some politicians offer their thoughts and prayers instead of offering support for tangible change that could prevent future shootings. So can you tell us from your perspective, what moments of frustration have you experienced with your Republican colleagues, uh, many of whom are pretty wholly opposed to changing America's gun
2: laws? Well, the great frustration is that this issue isn't that controversial outside of Washington. You know, Something like background checks, universal background checks, making sure that every gun that's sold has to come with a background check to make sure you're not selling a gun to a serious criminal or somebody who's seriously mentally ill. That's supported by 90% of Americans. We have universal background checks in Connecticut. And I almost never run into somebody in Connecticut who who has had a problem getting a gun to protect themselves or to hunt or to shoot for sport. We don't have a lot of complaints from gun owners in Connecticut that our laws are too onerous. And, and yet they work. Not only are universal background checks popular, but they work. In Connecticut, we have 400 percent lower rates of gun homicides than a state like Florida does that has some of the loosest gun laws in the country. And that's my frustration is that Republicans can support these changes and pay no political price.
4: Senator Murphy is so far right on this. Now, the majority of Republican senators who voted for the BSCA had either decided not to run again in the November midterms, or were senators who were only elected in 2020, so their seats weren't on the ballot. But Lisa Murkowski of Alaska and Todd Young of Indiana were reelected after voting for the BSCA. At the same time, some Republicans have paid a political price for embracing gun policy reform. Chris Jacobs, a congressman from New York, was forced to abandon his re-election campaign after he was fiercely criticized by fellow Republicans for supporting an assault weapons ban. Looking at Republicans' disappointing performance in the midterm elections, Murphy said the party should reconsider its knee-jerk opposition to changing America's gun laws.
2: It is true, we only have a handful of Republicans that will support these measures today. But I mean, my argument is that for Republicans that were kind of astonished at how badly they did in these midterm elections, Part of the reason is their position on guns. Um, It was an important issue to midterm voters. They have made the decision. Republicans are way too extreme on the issue of guns. And if Republicans don't start getting sort of coming back to the center on the issue of guns, back to where 90 percent of the American public is, I think they will have a hard time winning elections in this country.
4: And you're absolutely right that Republicans performed not nearly as well as they were widely expected to in the midterms. And at the same time, we saw some politicians who have been very resistant to changing gun laws also win re-election. When we think about the state of Texas, uh, Governor Greg Abbott was uh, pretty easily re-elected, even though he has been really harshly criticized for opposing gun reform, particularly after the shooting at Robb Elementary School in the town of Uvalde. The town of Uvalde itself actually voted Abbott back into office. So Even though there is this very widespread support for changing America's gun laws, it seems like it isn't as motivating as an issue as, say, the economy or abortion rights. How do you explain that and how could uh, anti-gun violence advocates potentially try to change that dynamic?
2: Well, I don't know that I agree with the premise of the question. I think there are lots of examples out there of candidates who ran strongly on the issue of guns and won, Gretchen Whitmer. In Michigan, a 50-50 state, ran on the issue of stronger gun laws. Tony Evers won election in Wisconsin for governor, running on stronger gun laws. John Fetterman has tattoos on his arm memorializing the people who died in Braddock, Pennsylvania, to gun violence. He lives the issue of gun violence, and he won in a conservative state of Pennsylvania. So I'm not going to say that this year guns was more important than abortion. But it is one of the top four or five issues today in a way that was not, it was not 10 years ago. And there are candidates that are running and winning on the issue of guns today in a way that we would not have seen five or 10 years ago.
4: I was interested to hear from a senator who has to deal with lobbyists as part of his job about one of the most powerful lobbies in Washington, the NRA.
2: There's no doubt that the NRA is much less powerful today than it was a decade ago, two decades ago. Um, they strongly opposed the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, and it passed the Senate with ease. There are really no Democrats that um, listen to the NRA any longer, and there are fewer and fewer Republicans that do. Ten years ago, it would have been unthinkable for a gun safety bill to pass the Senate with NRA opposition. The NRA was successful politically for a long time because You know, they had broad credibility inside the conservative movement, but, you know, their decision to take these really extreme positions, uh, like being against background checks, something the NRA wasn't against 20 years ago, has just robbed them of some of that credibility that they have, even within the conservative movement. And that means a lot of Republicans are less willing to pay their recommendations heed when looking at key votes like the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act.
4: There have been significant changes to America's gun laws since Sandy Hook. But just in the couple of weeks since I spoke to Senator Murphy, there have been multiple high-profile mass shootings in the
6: U.S. Police in the U.S. state of Colorado say a man who is suspected of shooting dead five people and injuring 18 at a gay nightclub is under arrest and in hospital.
3: Police confirming now that six people were killed inside the store, the shooter is also
4: dead. A mass shooting at an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado And a shooting at a Walmart in Virginia, where a manager killed six of his colleagues, shocked the country once again. In the Colorado case, the suspect allegedly used an assault rifle-style weapon, as well as another firearm.
2: The idea we still allow semi-automatic weapons to be purchased is sick.
4: Assault weapons continue to be another divisive issue when it comes to gun legislation. Individual states can pass laws restricting access to assault weapons. But there is no legislation on the issue at the federal level. There was once a federal assault weapons ban that was approved under Bill Clinton and passed with the votes of both Democrats and Republicans.
2: We will finally ban these assault weapons from our street that have no purpose other than to kill.
4: But it had a deadline. And in 2004, representatives across the aisle couldn't agree on extending the ban. So it lapsed, and no such policy has been enacted since, despite calls for its return. Just last weekend, President Biden pushed for a vote on an assault weapons ban that has already passed the House, but it has stalled in the evenly divided Senate. Murphy has acknowledged that Senate Democrats do not currently have the votes to pass an assault weapons ban, but he still struck a hopeful tone for the near future especially if Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock wins his runoff election in Georgia next week.
2: Let's see if we can try to um, get that number as close to 60 as possible. If we don't have the votes, then we'll talk to Senator Schumer and maybe come back next year with maybe an additional senator and see if we can do better.
4: Poe Murray is the chair of Newtown Action Alliance. She introduced me to the three members of the junior NAA, who we heard from at the start of the show.
6: So when we first joined the uh, gun violence prevention movement, the bigger organizations that are in the gun violence prevention space, you know, told us that there is broad support for background check bills. Mm-hmm. So we united and we pushed very hard for the background check bills for many, many years. Mm-hmm. But we recognized that it wasn't passing. So we decided to basically push the reset button several years into um, the uh, advocacy efforts. And we began the campaign against assault weapons and decided to build a huge coalition to support the ban.
4: Poe's four children had attended Sandy Hook Elementary School, but they had left by 2012 when the shooting happened. The shooter, Adam Lanza, was her
6: neighbor. I grew up in Vermont. I learned how to shoot when I was in sixth grade, but decided not to shoot again My husband, who was my high school sweetheart, he comes from a hunting family. So when I first met him, he had a gun on his wall, Um, but didn't think anything about gun violence when I was raising my children. Uh, We believed that we lived in one of the safest communities in, in the nation and didn't think that we'd have to worry about gun violence. So it was quite shocking that a young man could uh, acquire an assault weapon in high-capacity magazines and murder 20 children and six educators in a matter of minutes.
4: The main difference between Newtown Action Alliance and other gun safety groups is that they demand an outright ban on assault weapons and other broad legislative changes. Critics of this more hardline approach say it gives groups like the NRA and gun rights advocates an opening to fight against any type of legislation. Poe does not agree.
6: Well, first of all, we're not uh, taking anyone's guns. Um, We've supported the assault weapons ban legislation for a decade, and in fact, we championed it. We've traveled to D.C. and urged uh, House members and senators to co-sponsor the bill. And the the way that this uh, legislation is crafted, it does not take away anyone's guns. Mm -hmm. The existing assault weapons would be grandfathered in. But, you know, I would like to see that bill get strengthened so that the existing assault weapons get registered the Mm -hmm. way uh, Connecticut law requires.
4: Grandfathering just means letting an old rule continue to apply to some existing situations while a new rule will apply to all future cases. Even with this difference of opinion, groups like Newtown Action Alliance and Sandy Hook Promise are united in wanting more to be done like laws that enforce safer gun storage. And while the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act was an important first step, gun safety advocates agree that lawmakers need to do more.
6: Unfortunately, uh, it took you know many, many mass shootings and school shootings uh, for people in America to recognize the fact that no one is safe. No civilian needs a weapon of war um, in our communities. Uh, Limiting high-capacity magazines will be important as well because um, in many times, the um, high-capacity sometimes jams and it gives an opportunity for a child or a teacher to um, escape. Universal background check, that's a must. Um, We'd like to see Ethan's Law passed, which will require uh, gun owners to safely secure their guns when kids are around. Um, Simple as that. And also, I'd like to see more funding for um, gun violence research. There hasn't been enough research, and it wasn't until you know recently that funding was available for them.
4: And yet, with all that said, Poe is hopeful when she thinks about the changes that
6: groups like hers will bring about in the next ten years. I'm so proud to see so many young people um, come out and vote on this issue, and the first Gen Z member of Congress. His name is Maxwell Frost. And in fact, you know, um, he was 15 years old when he contacted us to attend the first national vigil for all victims of gun violence. He was touched by what happened here in Sandy Hook and decided that he wanted to get engaged. And we've nurtured him through all these years. And he ended up working for March for Our Lives and ACLU. And then he decided to run for Congress and he won. So we have a true champion in Congress now who's young, and that's what we'll need. We'll need more young people to get engaged and, and, and run and win and tackle this issue. Mark Barden
4: and Nicole Hockley of Sandy Hook Promise are also hopeful about what the next 10 years will
5: bring. By the way that this, this organization runs and works in its own internal culture, we are so fortunate that we attract people that want to be part of this for the right reasons. And they bring their talent and their passion and their expertise and their intellect. And that's really what drives this organization. The generosity of our donors is what fuels it. And these amazing people that are doing the work on the ground are what makes it what it is.
1: I have always been and always will be hopeful. Um, Hope is what fuels this organization and our work every single day but the impact and the proof that what we're doing works is that's about the action and so it's not just hope without anything behind it, it is hope because we know it works and we're just going to keep doing that and and keep working at this because it's what we need to do
4: a huge thanks to Nicole Hockley, Mark Barden, Poe Murray, Senator Chris Murphy, Geneva Wharf, Olivia Muir, Mikhail Wilford, and everyone else who helped us in the making of this episode. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer was Daniel Stevens, and the executive producer was Maz Ebtehaj. I'm Joni Grief. Thanks, as always, for listening.